0: Welcome to ASCP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Dr. Loti Mulder, I'm the Director of Leadership and Environment at ASCP, and I'm one of your hosts. Hi,
1: I'm Allie Brown, I am your co-host. I'm a board-certified pathologist in anatomic and clinical pathology, and I'm the Chief Medical Officer at ASCP. Today, we are talking about colorectal cancer biomarkers and how the assessment and results of these biomarkers impact our patients' lives. We have this being told from the perspective of a pathologist and a laboratory professional, and then in a very valuable twist, also from a couple of patients, including one of our ASCP patient champions. So now I'll go ahead and let our guests introduce themselves.
2: Hi, my name is Melissa Taggart. I am also a board certified pathologist in anatomic and clinical pathology. I also am fellowship trained in gastrointestinal and liver pathology. I trained here at MD Anderson Cancer Center, which is where I have worked since my fellowship. Uh, so, currently, I am a gastrointestinal pathologist, um, and that's pretty much all of all that I see. Um, I am also the director of the Gastrointestinal and Liver Pathology Fellowship here at MD Anderson.
3: I'm Heather Tucker, and I am an ASCP patient champion, and I was diagnosed in 2017 at the age of 36 with stage 2 colorectal cancer after being misdiagnosed for many years.
4: Hi, I'm Sarah Clays. I'm a patient. I'm 43, was 39 when originally diagnosed. I've been in financial tech about 20 years, but currently on medical leave. I'm just excited to be here.
5: Good morning. I'm Carla Valencia. I am a laboratory manager here at MD Anderson Cancer Center. I oversee um, four departments here, but have been uh, at MD Anderson for about 17 years, touched many labs and worked there, and I'm excited to be here. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you all for joining us today. I have to first mention our CME credit. Remember, you can get CME and CMLE for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA credit one, a category one credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. And also this activity has been uh, generously supported by funding from an independent educational grant from CGIN. So Melissa, there are a lot of different biomarkers that you assess in colorectal cancer. Some probably reflexively or automatically that comes with along with the diagnosis. And I know some depend on maybe the stage or something that's going on clinically. Um, as a breast pathologist, I'm used to assessing certain markers in that sort of a scenario. You know, for a long time, we've assessed them uh, reflexively, right? Everyone gets hormone receptors and HER2. And then there are some other markers that might come into play, either with more advanced disease or if a patient's uh, trying to get on a clinical trial, et cetera. But everything is evolving so fast all the time. For colorectal cancer, what are some cancer biomarkers that are commonly used and how have you seen these tests evolve over the years of your practice?
2: So, yes, and you're right, Allie. You know, for breast, um, this has been going on for a long time. Um, Pretty much for colon cancer, uh, these really started... uh, coming to the forefront, maybe around uh, 2009, um, we really started testing a lot of solid tumors and colorectal uh, tumors were probably the, the the tumor that we tested the most when we're talking about solid tumors. Um, so I guess when we first started testing, some of the most common situations that we would test for uh, were would be for genetic um, or hereditary conditions that predisposed um, patients to colorectal cancer. the The next biggest one um, was really for a predictive um, and. A marker um, where we're looking at a particular drug. So they've really kind of been driven with targeted therapy and if the patient can qualify for some of the the targeted therapies. And then now as they've evolved, you know, we certainly are using them not only for predictive markers, which means that will the patient, or will the tumor respond to a particular therapy? You know, how how much do we think that it will respond? But we're also using them for prognosis. So some of the most common ones are going to be the DNA mismatch repair um, system testing that can be done by a different a, a couple of different methods. And that's probably the most common one that we reflex now. Uh, in the past, we did not reflex it because it was a semi-genetic test. And, you know, so there's we want to make sure that the patient's getting the results and things like that. But now we do reflex it because it's so important in uh, getting a particular therapy, immunotherapy, uh, which we can talk about a little more later. Um, And then all of the rest of the testing is um, for certain uh, genes that may predict how the patient's going to respond to certain therapies. So uh, EGFR inhibitors, we will test KRAS um, or the the RAS system and the RAF system. Um, And then there's a couple of newer um, markers, um, some fusions, which occur in very, very, Few patients, but we do have a we do have a drug for them. So um, if you know you have that particular molecular alteration, that is also uh, something that uh, the the physician has in their arsenal to to try on that particular tumor. So the other thing is testing for clinical trials and drug development. Um, certainly, if we can find very common uh, alterations. Uh, drug developments, you know, pharmaceutical companies are very interested in that. And it, it just helps our patient getting getting another option for therapy.
1: Yeah, especially at a big cancer center, I would imagine there's a lot of activity around that and around testing blocks that maybe are cases that were done elsewhere. And now the patient's coming to MD Anderson to be enrolled on the trial or get some sort of advanced therapy. It's kind of a unique setting, I would imagine. Exactly. And Carla, how have you seen these changes come about on the on the technical side within the laboratory? Has this increased volume? I, I, I would think that things are getting much more complicated um, on the lab professional side as well.
5: Yes. Um, I, uh, so, yes, over over time, um, it has increased on both um, internal collections and external Um, We used to be, um, uh, our volumes used to trend um, higher for internal collections or inside cases uh, versus now we're at about four, I would say we're about 55% for internal and the remaining would be external. Um, There is a lot of um, interest in testing external um, material for patients that are seeking treatment via, like Dr. Taggart mentioned, via clinical trials or all the type of treatment plans that we have and even like gene therapy and so forth. So we do do a lot of testing, molecular testing um, for oncology teams on um, a lot of external material now, which is something that we didn't have, uh, let's say compared to um, to five to 10 years ago.
1: Yeah, I would, I mean, It really hits home as pathologists and lab professionals when we think about the impact we have on our patients for that and to get those timely results out, particularly when a patient has advanced disease and wants to be enrolled in a clinical trial for some sort of experimental treatment or something that shows uh, early promise. So it can be kind of a heavy job. And uh, I I know how difficult it is to um, coordinate, especially when you mix in and outside hospital, a whole nother pathology practice, et cetera. So great job. Um, I know that probably hunting down things and, and things like that can take some time. Yes. But as I remember from when I was at MD Anderson, patient needs to have those results to be seen in, in some cases. Um, so it's really important to, to have timely results. Now shifting gears to our, our patients on the call, which we're so glad to have today. Um, Sarah, from your perspective as a patient, how did you first learn about biomarker testing and how it works with colorectal
4: cancer diagnosis and treatment? Sure. So the first time I had heard about it was, um, I, I didn't hear about it in my initial diagnosis when I was stage one, but when I had recurrence in late 2022, 20, uh, I um, I knew I wanted to be, i um, at Mayo Clinic, which wasn't too far for me, luckily, um, at least the Jacksonville campus. And so I had um, got in with Mayo Clinic and started going through their onboarding process. And that was one of the first things that they did um, was perform genetic testing. And so I started to learn about what the biomarkers were, why they mattered. Um, I understood from um, the oncologist there that they would help drive my different treatment options. And it was at first, it, it seemed a little bit like, wow, this is so interesting. But then it was like, you know, we got to go ahead and do the traditional, you know, first line treatment. Um, so it was, it was kind of very exciting, but also then a little bit put on the shelf
3: um, to come back around to. So that was my first experience. How about you, Heather? I didn't hear about that until I was in a patient group on Facebook. And even then it was people talking about it, but I didn't really understand what it was. Unfortunately, I live in a rural part of the country. And so our clinic, and I use that term loosely, is a doctor that comes from 75 miles away and he treats all types of cancers. And um, it's just, he's only here a few days a week. So we didn't really get into those types of things. He's really busy. And it wasn't until probably I was completely done with the treatment that I really started understanding. And that was because I went to a conference and I started learning from doctors.
1: Oh, wow. Interesting to hear different kind of different ends of the, the spectrum and gosh, good, good for you. Congrats on being empowered and seeking out knowledge. I, I can tell you as a pathologist, I find it very confusing sometimes, particularly if it's in an area that I don't normally practice in, like for instance, colorectal cancer. So, uh, in no way should anyone ever feel ashamed about asking additional questions because it can be confusing for everyone. It's changing so rapidly and it can get pretty technical. So, Carla, let's talk about quality control measures. Um, we, you know, sometimes patients may not, you know, they they want the test, they want it fast, but they don't realize all that goes into making an accurate test result. Not every result is created equal, Right. So what are some measures that you take within the laboratory to ensure the reliability of these cancer biomarkers, just in general?
5: So we're lucky in MD Anderson to have a dedicated team, especially for the biomarker process. We call it, we're trying to transition the name to path biomarkers or path Expeditors. So um, here we have different um, uh, checkpoints that we we, uh, filter the patient's cases through to ensure that we are testing the right uh, tumor, and that we are um, really going over the history of the patient and selecting the right case or tumor for this patient to be um, analyzed or or tested. So um, here we have different, um, so I'll just mention one of the areas, which is called um, Station 1, and from here we receive the orders from the oncology teams. Um, there isn't a case selected already by the clinician, but we also um, will um, review the outside reports and including the inside reports to make sure there's no duplicate testing for this patient already performed. If there is, we also let the clinician know and screenshot the results of the external um, testing that has been performed to let them know that these were the results from the external institution. Do they want to repeat in-house to make sure, you know, they're accurate or we we don't really know what they're working um, or what treatment plan they're working on the patient with, but we do wanna let them know that all this information is here upfront. So this is one of the areas that um, I know that we um, we don't have to do this, but we do provide it as part of a, a service line and just a patient experience for the patient. Um, but also we've noticed that uh, the clinician, most of the times they say, oh, yes, well, thank you for letting us know, and I will proceed or I won't proceed to repeat. And then um, from there, we um, we also have, you know, tissue qualification uh, a rotation um, that a pathologist um, is, is actually on service for them. And so what we do is when, we, um, when the archive case is selected, Um, We send it to a pathologist for review to make sure that there's enough tumor there before we even proceed with further testing. So sometimes, um, you speaking with, um, when you mentioned, uh, sometimes patients get frustrated with us. We we sometimes have to convey this information to the nurses and oncology team that that we're not delaying the case because we're not wanting to move the case forward. It's just that sometimes the, the, the cases that we get are very complex. And that does require multiple reviews by pathologists and then also reviews by us and then also by pathologists before we can proceed um, to send it to designated labs.
1: Yeah, if you got a false negative, like if the test came out negative, but a driver mutation was really there, that impacted treatment, then you're actually denying the patient treatment that they should be having. So there's a lot a lot of stakes riding on uh, on high stakes riding on these laboratory tests that your team performs. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome.
0: Yeah. And then Heather, you, you said that uh, you really didn't learn about the biomarker testing until you said after your treatment was done, did the understanding of biomarker testing still impact your overall understanding of your, uh, of your cancer and any treatment that you may have received?
3: So I just received standard of care. I wasn't really talked about anything else. As far as I know, I don't even know if, I have any mutations or anything. Um, I have a pathology report, but it is pretty basic. It doesn't talk about any of that kind of stuff. So it just says staging and basically it discussed that I had clean margins and that they re- cut everything out when they resectioned, but I don't I don't even know if I've been tested. I mean, I'm assuming I've been tested, but I don't even know. It's not in anything I can have access to. So
0: and then, and, and still, even learning yeah, about biomarkers, you good. said you went to conferences and I think you said some online groups. Mm-hmm. What impact did that have? Did that, or did that not have any impact? <laughs> also, possible.
3: It had a huge impact on my understanding of things because I was able to actually ask the questions, and um, the presentations were extremely informative.
0: And then with Sarah, with you, because you find out uh, during your treatment or before your treatment of biobarcomarticin, so did any of that influence your decisions about your treatment plan?
4: Um, it did. It has had an impact. So I have been, I'm now on my second um, uh, HER2 treatment. So I was positive for HER2. And so I was on uh, a treatment for a while, the um, Herceptin and Tukaiza combination, And then now I'm on the in her to treatment. So it has had a direct correlation to my treatment options. Yeah. And that's
1: relatively new testing, you know, testing for her too. So that's great.
2: I think it's, it's fantastic that um, our patients are learning more and more about their disease processes. Um, And, you know, again, kudos Heather to you for, you know, searching out the information that you know about your disease and how it could potentially affect you you know one of the things I think that we're struggling with right now is Heather you said you received standard of care um Sarah did you receive standard of care at first and then um and then went to particular uh molecular testing and targeted therapy yeah um so you know, that's one of the challenges when you talk to the oncologist that now we are getting all of these targeted therapies. And when to do the testing is an important conversation that we're having. You know, do we have do we do it up front when the patient is first diagnosed? Do we wait until the patient recurs or you know, metastasizes um, with their tumor? Um, you know, um, you know, what are the cost implications of that? If you know a patient. You know, do you undergo the testing and, you know, depending on what insurance covers, you know, um, will the insurance even cover it? And do you want to have the testing and will those results even matter to your treatment up front um, if it's not needed um, for, you know, a particular stage of your tumor? So, you know, the the oncologists wrestle with this and they make all of these guidelines. And my understanding right now is that uh, standard of care is you know, the initial um, uh, therapy that they would go ahead and proceed with. And then all of the targeted therapies tend to be second line. However, your oncologist could certainly change up the order um, and then, you know, uh, give the reasons why they're they're doing that. Um, here at Anderson, the only thing that we do reflex testing is the DNA mismatch repair proteins by immunohistochemistry. That is our really only reflex testing. We require the clinicians to order everything else, so they know and when. The patient needs uh, the the testing, but there are other institutions who are doing it upfront on every new colorectal cancer. So, you know that brings in a discussion of healthcare care dollars and where to spend them wisely, and um, you know, and having that information ready for when they actually need it, so they don't have to wait for the results.
1: Carla, is that taken into account anywhere on the laboratory side? or is it usually is that worked out by the time the order is placed? So we recently
5: had to make some modifications due to the transparency act of, you know, it went into effect um, I believe beginning of this year. Um, so we do for patients that are um, self-pay, we do have to um, at the time after the oncologist places the order, the we do have a financial team that will reach out to the patient to inform them of the charges before we proceed with testing. Um, and we also um, have a link, uh, a direct link on our web, on our, our MD Anderson website where the patient is able to calculate um, their uh, charges upfront before proceeding with testing. Oh wow. Um, so it has modified somewhat um, because we used to proceed, we used to just receive the orders and proceed with testing, but now there's some um be, you know just due to and, and it's also, I mean, it's good for the patient also to to let them know ahead of time of what the charges will be for these tests. Um and and so we have um, made some modifications there.
1: Wow, that's huge. Uh because I think when patients receive the bill from the laboratory, oftentimes even the laboratory bill comes separate from the bill for everything else. Uh, And I mean, as as pathologists and lab professionals, we tend to be fairly dissociated from what those charges actually are. Uh, So, wow, that sounds like a really a best practice and something to be really, really proud of.
0: Yeah, and, and Sarah and Heather, Sarah, based on your uh, experience with, with biomarker testing and then Heather, based on your, of what you've learned and uh, your education after your treatment, are there any specific questions you would recommend patients asking, possibly in addition to like, hey, well, what does this cost? Uh, but any other questions that you think it would be good for patients to ask about biomarker testing or just anything related to colorectal cancer?
4: I think my biggest question, and so I'm thinking other patients would have it, is just how how does that tie into clinical trials? It it seems like that's so much of maybe where um, the treatments are going, but I might be making that up. I don't know if that's true. Um, so I think just understanding like how that would tie into different possibilities for clinical trials, and are there clinical trials that you know are based on something else entirely? I don't know. But I have some grayness in that area
2: myself. Well, I was go just
3: gonna say, for me. I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know that I needed to ask about biomarkers. I didn't know that was a thing.
2: Yeah. So um, you know, just talking about like clinical trials. Um, certainly, I'm not an oncologist, um, so I don't participate um, in them. But what I do know is sometimes they need very specific testing. Um, So it's not something that we could probably do as just a blanket testing for them. Sometimes they need it um, on a specific biopsy. Sometimes you actually even need to get a new biopsy. Sometimes they need a particular assay done. Um, So clinical trials, we kind of leave up to the oncologist to know if the patient fits the features for a particular clinical trial, and if it's at the time that the patient needs to go into clinical trials, certainly when you're starting out with therapy, um, I think they will try the um, the uh, the common uh, or conventional regimens first, go on to targeted therapy, and then talk about clinical trials. Of course, certainly if uh, there are clinical trials that may be beneficial to the patient, then they will then. Introduce them to the to the patient, uh, you know, on an individualized um, uh, practice, and then we can certainly then undergo the testing that they need for the clinical trials. That's not a problem. And then for Heather, um, I I agree with you. You know, it's you know, it, depending on your clinical situation, um, you know, biomarkers may not have really played a big role in your treatment um it you know at the time and and perhaps you know when you did need the biomarkers for a more advanced care um that's a poten- potentially where they may have had that discussion with you but it i think it is all over the news and i think you know patients are aware of it and i think it is great to have that conversation about you know, well, here are some things might, down the road that we may have to try, you know, but we'll discuss them when we get there or more patients would like to know up front. Uh, it just really probably depends on the patient. Um, but I'm glad that you found access to a number of different educational activities that can help you and certainly empower you to ask your, your clinician a, about them, definitely.
0: Yeah, and, and Heather, just one more follow-up question for you. I mean, you're... You really advocated for yourself. Uh, you mentioned very briefly that uh, it took you a while to get your diagnosis. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that's also really important for other patients to hear. Like, I feel like you know when you know if something is wrong, to to keep asking for uh, for tests. And I think, um, yeah, like in your own words, what do you think? One kind of made you uh, keep going to doctors and and and. Um, asking for a col- colonoscopy and uh, and what would you recommend other patients in in, in similar circumstances? But like they think that there's something wrong. Like what what did you do? What they, can they draw from your story?
3: So I started talking to doctors. I know as early as 2012, and I didn't get diagnosed till 2017. Um, and I know there was at least five different doctors that I talked to about rectal bleeding and constipation, and they all just said, oh, well, you've had children. So it's probably hemorrhoids. And at that point, I was super healthy. I ran half marathons all the time. I was half fanatic. And it got to the point where my bleeding was constant and I couldn't run. I just, I could barely function day to day. I had three children. By the time I was diagnosed, They were two, four, and eight. I was a stay-at-home mom. And so I finally, unfortunately, I'm not proud of it, but I got pretty nasty with my PCP. I was like, I'm tired of being tired. I don't feel good. And she was like, Well, you have young kids and it's probably hemorrhoids. And she tried to blow me off again. And I was like, Look, can you at least do blood work or let me get rid of these hemorrhoids because they're a pain, you know? So she did blood work. And then she called me the afternoon. She was like, You're extremely anemic. And I was like, I told you I've been bleeding. Like, I don't know what else to tell you. I'm tired and I'm bleeding. <laughs> so. She sent me to the general surgeon in the practice, and he was going to remove my hemorrhoids. But he was like, let's do a colonoscopy first and see what we're dealing with. And when I woke up from the colonoscopy, he said, you have cancer. He said, there's no doubt in my mind it's cancerous. And my radiation oncologist, he said my tumor was between 8 and 10 years old. So if i had had an aggressive form, I would have died because I was too young to have colorectal cancer.
1: Yeah, you kind of didn't suit the image Right. And unfortunately, I think uh, there's six women on this podcast. People may listen to a woman say she's tired and this and that, and it can be discounted sometimes. Uh, thank goodness that that general
3: surgeon finally listened and thought, oh, maybe something's not right. That was a perk of a small town is um, our our children went to the same preschool mm-hmm. and actually been to his house and seen him in his bathing suit type of town where I live. So <laughs> he took me serious. You could blackmail him for that swimsuit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fred, do you want to share something about your story?
4: I, I had a very uh similar experience. I um I would say for about 10 years, I had um just every GI issue you could think of. Um I did at the end, um I was losing weight without trying, I was losing hair. Um, I was tired all the time. My skin color was off. Um, I ate extremely healthy, was active, did yoga, Pilates, um, same kind of thing. And, you know, my, um, doctors were always just like, you know, ignoring me and saying, you know, you probably need to drink more water or, you know, eat more salad or, I'm like, there's not enough kale salads in the world. I mean, I tried everything. (laughs) Um, and so Same thing. They thought it was hemorrhoids. You know, I I had mucus and blood in the stool. Um, So when people say, what were your symptoms? I said, I had all of them, literally all of them. Um, And so I had actually gone and got, I went to the ER um, because I was so constipated. Um, And uh, this was in 2019 and got sent home. They did CT scan, said, I was just backed up here, take, you know, a bunch of laxatives. You'll be fine. Um, And then eventually I um, talked my um, primary into getting me a referral to a gastroenterologist. And um, he was like, I really don't think you need the colonoscopy. You know, again, I was back to begging, begging this doctor to give it to me. And um, so thank God he did. And, you know, I'll never forget his face when he came in. You know, he was completely white. He just was shocked. And same kind of thing. He said, I have no doubt this is cancerous. You know, it was um, a large six centimeter mass um, in the rectum. And um, he said it'd probably been there 10 years. So, and he said I was 90% block. I I, like, I don't know how I even use the restroom, honestly. Um, But, you know, it did speak to how uncomfortable I was for so long. And so I was frustrated that it took so long to be taken seriously. And it's like, I don't know what... um, they think colon cancer should look like, but it looks like all of us. I mean, it's there's no look. They just got to stop trying to look for it um, and listen to how people feel um, and what's going on in their daily lives. I think, you know, most people are smart enough to know if they're just having a bout of diarrhea or an occasional constipation um, versus something that's ongoing, you know, throughout their life. So,
3: very Yeah, slow. I want to piggyback on that. link she said, I think colon cancer for a long time was an old white man's disease. And it's not. If you have a colon, you're at risk.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it it is a big trend, not even just in the United States, but worldwide that Colorectal cancer, especially rectal cancer, is now being seen at younger and younger ages. Um, As Heather said, it used to be an old white man's disease. You know, you used to not see it until people were in their 60s, and now it's not uncommon to see patients who are in their 40s with um, colorectal cancer. And those are the symptoms that, you know, clinicians really need to be educated about looking for, fatigue, fatigue blood in the stool, mucus in the stool and and you know the the symptoms of constipation. and it's such a very common symptom that I I can see especially in a younger patient and especially you know, a young female who's working and taking care of kids and you know all of the daily stresses to to just kind of blow off, you know, oh, I'm fatigued and my, you know, my bowel habits are off. You know, I'm sure they hear it all of the time, but it's going to have to really be put on clinicians' radars that this needs to be checked out. And a lot of times you will need the colonoscopy. A CT scan may not pick it up. So um, that's certainly really, really important information for people who are listening to the podcast. Yeah.
1: Even for our pathologists and lab professional listeners, you know, go get your colonoscopy. Also screening colonoscopy. If you're not having symptoms and you're 45 or older, it's a nice nap. If nothing else, it's not that bad. I mean, the prep is, not <laughs> fun, but uh, it's gotten it's better. better. better.
2: <laughs> and the nap is definitely
3: nice. <laughs> the prep has gotten a lot better. It used yeah. to be yeah. a nasty drink and now they even have a pill form, and it's really uh-huh. gentle and easy. Much better. Nice.
1: Much better. All right, let's let's get back to talking a little bit about the lab. Thank you guys so much for sharing those valuable stories and I'm um, uh for the inspiration that you're you're providing, I'm sure, to the, the people listening to this podcast. Um when it comes to biomarker reporting, um I know that this probably varies from institution to institution, but at MD Anderson, is there like a standardized way for it to be integrated within the report or, um, you know, I know some people practice in a place where maybe it gets, things get scanned in because they're not done in-house and they're like a separate document in the electronic medical record. And in that case, probably not accessible to patients or it might be difficult to access. And even for the clinicians, what's the workflow as far as reporting biomarkers, the the ones we do reflexively or automatically, and then the ones that might be done a little bit down the line?
2: So Carla, do you want to address anything that you know, you see kind of the, what we're doing now and the trends um, that you may know about that I'm, I may not know about. Sure.
5: Okay. So, when, so yes, when the um, oncologist places the order for a patient, it can be a series of tests that are going to be performed by cytogenetics lab, MDL lab, and even reference testing if we're not offering in-house and also panels of IHC. So um, the IHC is reported by the uh, pathologist that's on service for for uh, biomarker testing. Um, and the MDL, the MDL portion is actually um, it's linked to the order. So if it's um, if, if the test is performed in-house, which is the majority of our tests are performed in-house, um, it will be once it is, once we send the specimen over to like MDL, it will be reported and verified. Can you,
1: can you explain what is MDL?
5: Oh molecular diagnostic lab. Thanks. Um, And from there, um, in chart review, um, if people are familiar with the EPIC format, um, in chart review, it will have a direct link to that test. And it would also update the status as resulted um, for the clinician or anyone to see. The patient will will also receive an in-basket or a message letting them know that there's results available for them. Um, Same same, uh, workflow for cytogenetics. Uh, the only difference would be for reference testing, we do um, send out to thirteen um, selected um, reference labs that, um, um, that our clinicians have chosen, and uh, those um, we do have an interface with Mayo on some of the tests. So um, the um, the resulting the sending resulting um, are all received um, via chart review, also in the Epic format, and the patient will also receive an in basket once the results are ready. Um, but the other ones, it, it is a manual process where when it's resulted, it, they send a copy to the um, oncologist that submitted the order and then they um, the nurses will um, send it over to um, him or it's a designated team that will uh, upload it to um, on base. So the patient will also have a copy of it. The clinicians, the majority of the time, are able to. They, they actually get the result before we do for the reference testing, but we do have it there for, you know, if a pathologist or anybody else wants to see what kind of testing the patient had it is on base and available for everyone to look at.
1: Yeah, sometimes it's hard to go clicking around in different places yeah. looking for results and linking it to one specimen and things like that. It can be uh, confusing and, and it can lead to error, you know, if, if something mm-hmm. is not noticed or not picked up on particularly when results might go to the clinician and then not come to the laboratory. I know in some hospitals, uh, the clinicians sort of solicit their own vendors, and it's not necessarily under the control of the laboratory. I'm hoping that Mm -hmm. it's happening less and less out there, but I know that is definitely an issue. Um, So it's not just the testing, but the information provided by the testing uh, that can really complicate matters. So, so that's very much the post analytical process, Carla. What, what are some things that in the pre analytical process that you guys work with? You talked about the ordering, et cetera. We talked about uh, making sure that that specimen, uh, the block that's being tested, actually has enough tumor in it, et cetera, and how the pathologists and the lab uh, professionals work together to ensure that. Are there any other pre analytical issues, certain controls you do, et cetera? Um,
5: as far as. Um... Through the biomarker process, uh, the controls are basically done. What I mentioned before was in a station one, just overseeing and reviewing all the patient's history. Um, uh, I I guess I can speak a little bit, the only, uh, I I will speak a little bit about the challenges that we have sometimes, and that is just when we are requesting um, additional material from external facilities. So that is a challenge that we deal with daily because we um, are, have to work with so many external uh, outside facilities and controlling the um, turnaround time and controlling the amount and the specimen that we're requesting sometimes can be uh, challenging. Um, and it certainly delays um, some of the testing. So some of those, that is a pre-analytical, I, I, um, I would say a challenge that we encounter at MD Anderson um, because, you know, like I mentioned before, for about 45% of our our biomarker testing is on external, it will be on external case. So some of those, um, that is one of the challenges that we faced um, face daily. Anytime something's not under your control. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and we try to work with them. We actually have a third party provider that helps us with that. But even then, um, sometimes um, they send us the wrong material or not what we ordered. So having to go back and and just following up on these orders just to make sure that are that we continue with the process and we're not delaying any of the testing um, can be challenging at times.
2: Yeah, it's um, it's they they our team does an incredible job. The amount of requests that come in every day, the fact that you know all of the patients uh, biopsies have to be looked through. Um, not only choosing just off the paper, then, you know, we have to then look at the slide, make sure there's enough material, then ask the outside pathologist to provide us the material so that we can do the molecular testing. Sometimes we'll get it in and the tissue has been depleted. And all of that is very uh, stressful and challenging to, you know, for the patient because they're like, where's my result? Where's my result? This has been three weeks, you know. Um And, you know, we try and do this um, so that we don't have to get another specimen from from the patient, you know, undergo another maybe invasive procedure like a liver biopsy or a colonoscopy. So sometimes it's worth the wait. Sometimes it's not. Um, And then sometimes the clinicians will opt for newer, um, some newer testing on blood. Uh, sometimes they can get some information from that. It's not always as sensitive as the tissue, so those are also some some things that they can go around. Um, we do, as pathologists, try and um, uh, you know select the best specimen, the one that's going to be the most cellular and the w- one that's the most recent, especially if you're in a, a in in a stage four um, position. Um, you know, uh, we want to choose the The specimen that's going to have the most tissue and, you know, the most recent biopsy. So we can catch any new or evolving clone uh, that may be targeted by therapy.
1: You bring up using peripheral blood, you know, the liquid biopsy, I'm using air quotes, Mm -hmm. we hear about that a lot. Mm -hmm. What's your experience um, at MD Anderson with the use of this and with um, how the clinicians are handling it?
2: Yeah, so they use it in different ways. Now, again, I'm not an oncologist, so and we certainly do, you know, only do the the orders. We don't, you know, uh, start it ourselves. But um, so when they feel that that it is a need, uh, they will do it. Um, they are starting. It is now coming to the forefront where uh, NCCN guidelines, um, which is the guidelines that the clinicians use on. You know what's the proper algorithm for uh, for testing and then for treatment, um, uh, that is coming up. There really were no specific guidelines on when they should be using it at this point in time. I have seen it. Um, we do a lot of tumor boards, and sometimes we'll have tumor testing, testing of the tumor itself, and testing of the blood. Often, I see it will pick up some major, you know, uh, alterations, often it doesn't pick up all of them, you know, so which ones are you going to be missing? You know, is that going to be the most important one for targeted therapy? Um, but, you know, it, I guess it really will depend on the clinical picture on whether or not um, they they get something targetable on on blood, and then they can go after tissue after that. Um, They have been using it, though, for um, monitoring um, disease recurrence. So that's something, you know, so we use these, as we talked about earlier, you know, we use these tests, these tests, not only for choosing a therapy, but for different things, prognosis, and then when the patient has recurred. Um, So that's something that's now a discussion on whether or not you should just be doing this molecular testing on blood for patients who don't have any evidence by a CT scan that they have, a, you know, have recurred. And then what do you do with that result? Do you test just because there's an abnormality in the, or treat just because there's an abnormality in the blood now? Some people say yes. Some people say- Yeah, be maybe careful you when you
1: order those tests because you have to deal with the result. It reminds me of exactly. when we were doing molecular testing intraoperatively for sentinel lymph nodes. And then it was like, but- yeah, we can get that information right away, but what do we do with it? You know, you don't necessarily want to remove a bunch of lymph nodes from a patient um, and cause the potential morbidities associated with it if it doesn't have a clinical impact. So we're we're good exactly. at, at detecting things, but it doesn't mean that we necessarily uh, know what to do with that information. A cautionary
2: exactly. tale. Exactly.
0: And so Heather and Sarah, from um, are there some ways that you think Healthcare professionals, including pathologists and laboratory professionals, can really uh, can can potentially be- better educate and communicate regarding the role of biomarker testing um, in colorectal cancer care. Or do you think it's communicated well enough? I know you both have very different stories, so it'd be interesting to get both of your perspectives on that, Sarah.
4: When I first was diagnosed. There was some talk through the um, GI doctors about Lynch syndrome and testing me for that. And and then I tested negative, but they never explained why. So as a patient, I didn't know why that was important, why they were bringing it up. Uh, But I was at the time, you know, kind of just overwhelmed with dealing with the whole diagnosis. So, um, yeah, I didn't really think to kind of circle back to it. And then since it was negative, it was sort of like, you know, Let's move on to the next, you know, thing to sort out. But I think it would be nice if there was an explanation when things like this are brought up, so the patient understands why and what are you know what are the implications, whether something is positive or negative, how does it change, you know, what they might recommend for treatment. Uh, I I do feel like a lot of times it's like you you do feel like as a patient, you're just sort of being drug along, but you're not necessarily always being informed along the way. And, um, you know, even like um, with some of my HER2 um, experience that, you know, I feel like I've learned quite a bit about it and I know it's got a, you know, a lengthy history in the breast cancer world. Um, but even now, like I find myself having questions about it that I just, I, I don't fully understand, like, for example, um, my oncologist at Mayo said, well, the reason maybe the last treatment didn't work that well is because maybe your um, HER2, I think he said that the amplification wasn't overly expressed or something like that. I have no idea what that means. Um, so explain like what that means. Um, you know, and then if that was true, why are we trying another one? So, I, you know, I as a patient, I I have a lot of questions where I feel like I'm getting a little bit of the intel, but not, not full understanding. And if I could just interject about that, you know, those are
1: questions that are kind of based more on pathology, right, than the clinical scenario. So I know in in many situations and something that ASCP is working on with some fantastic volunteer members, having these pathology clinics, where patients can directly speak and ask questions to the pathologist. So you can ask about Mm -hmm. how does does gene amplification control protein expression, which is what he's talking about in your case, that the gene is the gene. There's too much of the gene, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's making too much of the protein down the road, which is what the drug is targeting. And then the new drug that he puts you on has a chemotherapy uh, linked to it. So it can be more effective than those that just target that receptor alone and try to turn it off. So, you know, that that's kind of more of the science-y way behind it. So I'm hoping that these pathology clinics really start uh, occurring on a, a more widespread basis. But Heather, I want to give you an opportunity to react to the question as well.
3: So in my clinic, there, there was no pathology. It was sent out. Um, I actually went to St. Louis to have my surgery, which is about seven hours away. Um, so they're a little bit bigger, but even still my access to my records, like I know um, like my staging, I'm T3, N-O-M-O, stage 2A. But that's basically what I got on the report and, you know, I had to Google it. I didn't know what that meant. Um, and then I go to these conferences and people are like, oh, I'm K-RAS and I'm MSI high. And they're listing like all of their stats. And I'm like, I don't know, stage two, like that's that's what I have to deal with. Luckily, I reacted well to the standard of care. Unfortunately, the standard of care, I mean, those chemos, you know, they have some lasting side effects. And if you're an old white man, those side effects for 20 years isn't that big a deal. But as a 30-year-old, you know, I don't have fingerprints now. I I have no feeling in my hands and feet. I have, you know, all these lasting side effects that I'll have the rest of my life. Because, and I'm neurodivergent, and that's on me, as far as understanding when people are explaining things to me. But I'm understanding that chemo is not going to be fun. It's going to be hard. You're not going to feel good. So when I was having side effects, I just didn't complain about them. I just sucked it up. And unfortunately, now I have all these issues that I'll have for the rest of my life. Um, But I was lucky standard of care worked for me. And I don't know how it is. You guys are all from larger medical centers and facilities and big towns. So maybe that information is given, but... I would have loved, here's a website with information or questions you might have, or here's a brochure or that, because again, I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't even know to ask things, to have it explained to me. I would have loved to have had access to a pathologist, um, but I know that they're busy. So I don't know, but I know other clinics, they have things like dietitians and physical therapists and masseuse therapy and all those things, unfortunately, I didn't have access to, but so maybe those things are offered at other clinics and I hope they are, but unfortunately, you just have to advocate. and You have to find out what you don't know.
2: Yeah. How Getting that information to the patient is, you know, it's difficult. Um, things are evolving. I think the new drug that Sarah is on, I'm not even sure how it works because, you know, HER2 is, you know, uh, amplification is is fairly uncommon in colon cancer, not like in breast cancer. So, you know, a very small amount of patients are going to be eligible for some of these um, drugs. So, you know, uh, as these things evolve, you know, we're learning about them, too, and then filtering down that information to and the, the clinicians are learning about them, too. Uh, you know, it's a whole new ball game for people who have trained 20 years ago to have to now learn molecular and then try and be able to explain that to patients. So it is challenging. And I think, you know, um, you know how to implement this in the doctor's offices is is challenging. I know ASCP has done you know a great job with doing these these multidisciplinary uh, you know conferences. I attended one, um, you know, just as an attendee. And I learned things from other pathologists, you know, what their standard of care was, how they're handling uh, issues with, you know, patient material. So, you know, we can actually exchange ideas and that's fantastic. Um, and the the patients were there and could ask the oncologist, well, why would you do this? Or what would you do first? Or is this necessary for me? And all of those things are, are just so important now. There's tons of information on the internet, but if, if you're like me, I never can find what I'm looking for on the internet when I go on. Um, so it's just almost overwhelming. Um, uh, you know, I, I think ASCP has done a great job getting some of that information, but you have to know to get to the ASCP to to look for that information and, and you know, how to get that to the clinicians and then get it to the patients is still quite challenging.
1: Yeah, thanks for helping us to spread the word. Um... In looking toward the future, Melissa, what kind of emerging technologies or methodologies in biomarker testing do you think are, are promising? What kind of looks exciting for for the future and the evolution of biomarker testing?
2: Well, I think um, possibly getting everyone uh, a molecular profile up front uh, so we can learn more about Cancers that are lower stage, that are higher stage, lower stage that are going to be more aggressive, that we're not seeing some of the features that we typically see on histology that may suggest to the to the clinician that this is going to be an aggressive tumor. Um, that certainly is will be fantastic, um, you know. But unfortunately, right now it's still quite expensive. Um, So getting insurance companies to pay for it, um, you know, getting grants to show that this this information is going to be important, I think. Um, And then looking at whole even genome uh, uh, right now, you know, we do targeted, you know, the panels are pretty big, you know, four or five hundred genes, but that's a. A drop in the bucket when you're looking at genes. So, you know, expanding those panels, um, getting the information, um, sorting through the data, and I think just, you know, computer and AI probably will help us do that. Um, and then possibly going, you know, developing these matrices for if we can get that molecular testing out done first, maybe skipping the more conventional, more cytotoxic therapies. And maybe then we can then start just doing the targeted therapies on, on tumors. Um, I, I think that's where I think we're going to be going. Um, unfortunately, right now we're not there. Cytotoxic therapy seems to be first-line therapy for the standard of care. And again, your oncologists can use things, uh, you know, off of standard of care. It it really will just be dependent on the patient's um, clinical situation at the time.
1: Yeah, more to come, and hopefully some more effective but less toxic therapies in the future.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
0: And then, as my final question, um, is there anything else uh, any of you would like to add from a medical perspective, from a personal perspective, any final message, information, or encouragement that you would like to share with our listeners?
3: I have a question. I know a lot of people are doing their DNA through different ancestry sites, and they're taking that raw data and they're uploading it and paying to have it analyzed um, for. DNA mutations and things like that, how is that different than obviously the actual tumor testing? And I guess, what is the accuracy of those types of things?
2: Yeah, so those tests um, will will look at your your normal genome. So what types of mutations you would have in your normal genome. Um, Tumors themselves will develop their own Mutations. So certainly, you could have one that is in all of your, a, a, a genetic abnormality that is in all of your cells that may predispose you to cancer, and so so those tests may pick that up, um, but they won't particularly pick up the mutations in a tumor. Um, so when we're testing the tumor, what we like to see is you know, what that tumor, what mutation is that that in that tumor, because we want to target the therapy to that. Um, So they're kind of both important in different ways. Um, You know, most people who have colon cancer are not going to have a genetic syndrome where there's a mutation in all of their their cells, but some people do. And, um, you know, one of the things when we look at patients, you know, under 50 years old is that's that's something it, that's a big consideration. Even though we test a lot of people, of course, the incidence of having a genetic syndrome when you're, you have an earlier onset of cancer is higher. Um, and that's another thing that should be discussed with patients who, who are younger, um, taking a look at their genome, because you certainly want to know about it for yourself. Um, you may be predisposed to other cancers, like uh, Sarah talked about the Lynch syndrome. What does that mean? Even have Lynch syndrome, um, and it, it's important for your relatives and your children certainly to get earlier screenings. Sometimes,
3: see, it's good to talk to the pathologist, right? It is. Have to take advantage of this moment.
2: Um, you know, I do have patients call me sometimes, so I think it's okay to call your pathologist. I, I think. Um, this is fantastic for patients to know that there is a pathologist behind the diagnosis. Uh, sometimes, um, often when I speak to patients, they say, Oh, I didn't know that someone else looked at that. I thought my doctor did it, you know, and, um, you know, there, you know, there is a whole team of laboratory professionals who, you know, who get that really vital piece of information to your doctor so that they can start making, you know, their decisions on how to treat the patient.
1: You, you couldn't have said it better. That, that's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you for saying that.
2: Yes. So call us if you have a question. We'll we'll answer it um, as the best of our knowledge. Of course, we certainly can't give you treatment recommendations or anything like that. But if you have a question about the tumor or why we did, did something or certain testing, um, we certainly can help you with that.
1: And I've noticed when patients have asked me about their reports or family members, we've all had those curbside consults. The thing that they're asking about in the pathology report is not necessarily the thing that I would have ever thought was the question. So just like mentioned, Heather, not knowing what you don't know, sometimes we don't even know what is the confusing thing we're putting in our report. So this bi-directional conversation is so, so important. I'm so glad to see it happening
3: more and more. Yes. Thank you for having us.
1: Oh, yeah, you bet. It's been a great discussion. I know that uh, everybody really picked up some things from either one side or the other, hopefully both. Mm -hmm. And thank you all for participating. We want to tell our listeners to let their colleagues know about this podcast and remember to subscribe to your favorite podcast aggregator so you don't miss any future podcasts.
0: And as always, you can receive CME and CMLE credit for listening to our podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ACP store on our website at www.acp.org.